Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Picard & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. Since the spring of 2021, Roughly 33 million Americans have resigned from their jobs in what has been called the Great Resignation, or the Big Quit. Experts have given various reasons for this shift, citing deep dissatisfaction with previous jobs, lack of affordable childcare, and a reevaluation of priorities brought on by the COVID pandemic. Our guests on today's show will analyze how the Great Resignation has impacted the legal profession and what legal employers can do, if anything, to stem the tide. I'm really honored to introduce our guests. First, Cindy Chang is a Duane Morris Los Angeles managing partner. She litigates complex business, class action, and commercial disputes involving contracts, products liability, business torts and fraud, insurance coverage, trademarks, and real estate. She served as president of the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association and president of the Southern California Chinese Lawyers Association, which honored her as its inaugural trailblazer. Currently, she serves on the board of directors for Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, commissioner on the ABA Commission on Women in the Profession, and a board member of the National Association of Women Lawyers. Her honors include Top 50 Women Super Lawyers of Southern California and the Daily Journal's Top 100 California Women Lawyers. Welcome to the show, Cindy. Thank you. Next, we have Josephine Bond who is an associate in construction law and commercial litigation at Cozen O'Connor's Washington, D.C. office. Previously, Joe was a senior attorney in the enforcement section of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. She earned her bachelor's degree from St. Joseph University and her law degree from New York Law School. She's the current chair-elect of the ABA Young Lawyers Division and will become chair in August of 2022. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. And finally, we have Nathan Pert who is Managing Director in Major, Lindsay, and Africa's Associate Practice Group based in London, England. Nathan works closely with associates to help them make lateral moves into law firms, whether in London, internationally, or between markets. Nathan has built an extensive global network of contacts, having worked as a recruiter in London, Hong Kong, and in New York. He's a graduate of the University of Nottingham and BPP Law School. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Well, Nathan, let's start off with you just as kind of a, a, an obvious question, which is, you know, even before the pandemic, attorneys left law firms. They went to other firms, left for other opportunities, even left the profession as a whole. So the question is, how has the great resignation actually impacted the legal profession? And how is it different from how attorneys have moved positions in the past? Yeah, they, they indeed did uh, make all of those moves. But I think the pandemic really has caused a shift in um, the way the market operates and, and associates particularly are really holding the cards right now. And I think that exists across, you know, all spectrums of the legal profession and roles. But particularly in the associate world, we've seen such a dramatic impact. You know, people really see how they can work from home, um, but they can also see how firms have stayed profitable and, and been, you know, their, 
had their best years ever. You know, we've seen all those shifts in the market. And I think that the just dynamic of associate life has really changed. You know, people really are taking an individualistic approach to their career. Um, and I think a lot of that drives all of these moves and, and sort of drives into that great resonation that we, we see globally. You know, if you take office time and FaceTime, for example, uh, you know, even between markets, some people really like being in the the office, particularly in, you know, markets like London and New York. Whereas, you know, I know we've had discussions before in markets like LA, for example, where there's much more of a drive commute and people are, um, you know, a bit more resistant to that time. So, um, you know, we've we've seen all of those things really come through in motivations for people looking to move and and what they're doing. And and the drivers are, are really ranged as well. I just think that everything's been magnified. And that includes things like parental leave, vacation policy, training, development, team size, all of these things are questions that we're constantly being asked asked about on the on the recruiter side. And, you know, as you say, some people leaving law altogether. And I've seen more of that over the past year or two than I have, you know, I think ever before. A lot of people doing MBAs or moving into different industries such as banking, a lot of international movement as well, either going back home or, you know, sort of trying to escape COVID mandates when they're particularly strict and trying to get out into somewhere that that has a lot more freedom. And so it's, it, it really has kind of aligned with the, the great resignation um, and it has been impactful on the legal profession. And it's really interesting to see all those different strands coming through. And Cindy, what have you seen as, as part of law firm management in Los Angeles? Yes. So I do agree with, with Nathan that associates have been a big driver with respect to the law firms in this shift in, in uh, focus for flexibility with this new remote work scenario that all of us have experienced in the last couple of years or so. And and frankly speaking, you know, I only speak from law firm management only because I've only been in law firms my, my entire career. I can tell you from what I've seen at the beginning of the pandemic, there was, you know, some resistance of, of working from home and, it's kind of indicative of how I think the legal profession is. It's that we're very reluctant to change and very slow to change. But then once we change, then and we get over that hump and we can kind of see how things are, then, you know, we adapt and we're resilient. So anecdotally speaking, at the very beginning of the pandemic, you know, I had lawyers in, in my office saying, what am I going to do? I'm not near my legal assistant. I'm not near my my monitors and my printers and all the things that I need to practice law. Um, but we were forced to work from home. And, you know, although the first few months of that was, when are we going to get back to work? When are we going to get back to work? Now, I don't hear that really at all. I think I'm hearing more of a desire of people who would rather prefer to work at home. And, you know, especially in L.A. where we do have a very long commute and getting those extra hours uh, from the law firm perspective and not having to sit in a car really makes for a more productive day. And another silver lining in all of this is that hours have been up. And I think that's not just my firm, but I just think generally speaking, when people haven't been out and about and doing, you know, travel for conferences or, you know, or business meetings or court appearances, 
um, and business development and have to just kind of stay at home in front of the computer. You know, the hours have been good and they've been really productive years, profitable years for the for the last, um, you know, since the pandemic. So we'll see how that pans out. And I guess the last thing I'll say is, you know, this hybrid environment, while good in some sense, I mean, we really do have to talk about the pros and cons of this remote work environment and how we're going to adapt to what I would call the new normal. Because I do think there is a new normal. There is a new perspective now that we've seen how remote work works. But I know we're going to get into that in a little bit about the pros and cons of remote working. So I'll, I'll leave that for now. Absolutely. And Joe, let me bring you into the conversation because I think something uh, that Cindy said really um, struck true to me, which is, you know, productivity can be up when you're at home for various reasons. Maybe it's the commute or just simply you don't have people just coming in at your office randomly. Are you seeing, first of all, maybe you can just tell us, you know, what your sort of work arrangement is. Assume, I assume you're remote, but you can give us more information. And how are you finding things in terms of productivity and ability to keep up with your work demands? So I'll answer the question in a couple of parts here, Dave, but I switched jobs during the pandemic. I recently moved into private practice about seven or so weeks ago. And before that, I was fully remote as a federal government lawyer. My husband, who is also a federal government lawyer, is still at home full time with no return to work in sight. But when I joined uh, the firm and, and started private practice, I almost immediately went to a 3-2 work split. Not something that my employer mandated by any stretch, but it just felt like I needed a little bit of face time. And so I come in three days and uh, then leave on Friday and don't come back until the following Tuesday. So I do have a hybrid schedule right now, and it's something that I'm seeing more younger lawyers being encouraged to do by some of the firm management teams and some of the more seasoned lawyers who think that the ability to walk down to an associate's office and catch them, go over edits, talk through a, a, a more challenging legal problem is important for their development, especially for the folks that are in that zero to two category, that first couple years of practice where they really haven't had a ton of face time. So as we emerge, as Cindy was saying, into into the new normal and dealing with that, one of the things that I'm seeing as far as young lawyers facing some concerns in the office is getting opportunities. You know, the pandemic has created a lot of great opportunities for access to justice with, you know, expanded court options from home and, and things like that, but it's also kind of lessened the opportunity for younger lawyers to take oral argument because partners don't have to be in two places at once to argue in one court and then an hour later get on and argue somewhere else. So one of the reasons that I'm seeing younger lawyers make a shift from either private practice to another firm or um, out of practice is simply to try and garner the best opportunity to learn and develop and grow their skills so that when they're ready to be up for partner or they're ready to lateral as a litigator or take on their first trial, they have the underlying skills that they need. Let's delve in a little bit to those pros and cons of of working remotely. And I think Joe identified a lot of those with respect to young lawyers. And I think the question in, in, in their minds is, you know, how am I going to develop as a lawyer? How, how am I going to get in front of partners who 
I need to show what my skills are uh, in order to, you know, be up for partnership at, at a later date and just get the assignments that, that I need uh, to get in order to um, develop my career. Cindy, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what your firm has done and kind of go through some of those pros and cons. Yeah, sure. With respect to the pros and cons of the remote work environment, I do think that the new normal to address the concerns that that Joe has just mentioned about, you know, being able to just knock on someone's, you know, door that's next door, down the hall from you is, you know, is a con because frankly speaking, you know, I grew up in the, in, you know, a different time where, you know, I'm following around a partner when I was an associate and learning from him or her as to sitting in on a deposition or sitting in court and getting to observe. And, and so do we lose all of that? Do, do we lose something when we don't have that banter, when you could go back and forth to someone's office and, and have that in-person uh, work? And, and so I think that the, what we need to think about is how can we have a compromise and get the benefits of both so that we can, you know, even have a better lawyer in today's age. You know, some of the pros are, now there are more opportunities, I think, for associates to participate in um, activities that they may not otherwise be able to participate because it could have been cost prohibitive. So, for example, if you know we're traveling somewhere and we want to meet with a client or meet with a witness, we might not have thought it was justified in cost to pay for a second person to attend because that would be more for training purposes. But now that things are remote, we can perhaps bring that associate remotely and they can participate. So I do think there are opportunities that we can take advantage of since more are adjusted to things that are remote or virtual. I I would say compromises, balancing between both, which is what Joe had mentioned, perhaps having, you know, a couple days where you're in person so that we can do in-person trainings, we can do socializing and that kind of stuff, and then have the other days remote. But to me, it, it, it has to be something in between so that we don't lose the benefits of both environments. And it sounds like, Joe, that's that's kind of what you've taken upon yourself to do, which is even though your firm may allow you to go completely remote, you've taken it upon yourself to actually go into the office a few days a week just to make sure that you're getting those kind of opportunities. Yeah, I, I suppose to to go off a little further on what Sidhu was saying, you don't know what's going to come knocking on your door if you're not in the room. And so one of the things that's been important for me is kind of balancing being here to make sure that I'm accessible a little more so than when I'm at home, but also balancing. I have two young kids. I've got a three-year-old and an almost one-year-old and making sure that some of the more important positives that have come out of the pandemic as far as spending more time with them is not lost. And so that was something that was particularly important to me. The prioritizing of priorities, frankly, for young lawyers is something across the board. I think that we're seeing as folks are making the decision on whether or not to stay with their current employer or shift somewhere else. So while I've given an example of what works for me, it certainly is different for everyone, but not the the newly important prioritization of what's important to each individual young lawyer. Right. And Nathan, I wonder if I can bring you back into the conversation um, in terms of, you know, what folks 
are looking for, you know, when looking for new employment, perhaps it is having that sort of per, at least partially remote environment so folks uh, can spend more time with their families and give priority to priorities that may not include work. It may include something personal or a hobby or that sort of thing. So what, what, what are you seeing um, in the, in the uh, legal job market right now? It's such a range. And I think that's really interesting about, you know, how this discussion today has evolved. And uh, some points I was thinking of there, you know, I, I think traditional drivers in, in in people's careers still hasn't really changed. You know, we, we survey partners and millennial associates and Gen Z, like the up and coming lawyers. And the consistent message is always that people crave mentorship and they crave training, you know, whatever generation level you're talking about. And so, you know, that's that's definitely part of reasons that people move, you know, things like we've already touched on. Some people do want a fully remote environment. I think it's interesting thinking about the speed of change, you know, Cindy's point earlier about um, lawyers being resistant to change you know, as an industry. And that's that's been really interesting. I was trying to reflect if there was any, you know, particular practice area or group that kind of rushed to to kind of take advantage of that remoteness versus others. And I, I don't think there is. I mean, anecdotally, the, the, you know, I think I've spoken to more litigators over the past couple of years who have gone and, you know, work from Hawaii or something like that than, than perhaps corporate lawyers. But all of these things are feeding in. It's things like parental leave, like I mentioned earlier. It can be super small things like, you know, whether they're forced to work on one particular thing or with a particular person or, you know, a lot of people have moved to different places. So uh, is the firm allowing them work from different offices? But the other thing I think then feeds into it and in talking about this hybrid word is it's really shifted, I guess, the the onus onto management. And, you know, that's that's so huge to try and figure out what to do on those days, because how on earth do you think okay, when when are people going to come in? How are we going to prioritise building culture, social events, inclusivity as a firm versus getting work done? And there's just a lot of pressure, I think, on, on leadership now um, and the partners and, and managers of teams and everything like that to really try and prioritise all of these things that are going on. And there's no perfect answer. There's no perfect way to show up and build culture, you know, give people exposure, make sure everybody's kind of getting fed or getting getting things happening, balancing your own family and requirements. And it's there's a stress there that I don't think, you know, we're kind of looking at even. And and all of that is then feeding into reasons that people move. Maybe they feel the firm culture's gone or the team culture's gone. And that pressure has really shifted. And it's it's very interesting thinking about it all, but I don't feel like there's just an obvious solution that nobody's looking at. It, it really is just moving wheels in every, in every part. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you talk about uh, stressors because running a law firm is probably stressful in itself, but then you're adding on um, everything related to the pandemic and health and safety, and then also this issue with associates who may be thinking about leaving, looking for other opportunities. Cindy, are law firm leaders particularly stressed during this period of time? Yes, we've been dealing with a lot of new territory, I'll say that. And of course, you know, our industry is inherently stressful. Important is the word culture and maintaining our culture. That's that's something that we've always been focused on. And we want 
our lawyers to be happy because if they're not happy, they're going to leave. And, you know, frankly speaking, I mean, law firms are, you know, want to be profitable. That's our goal to make money and, and, and serve our clients. So if, if our, if our um, staff and our attorneys, you know, are not happy about the culture and where they work, then guess what? Then they leave and we're, we're having to rehire. So keeping that in mind, we have to be competitive. And what we're seeing in the industry is that this is what, I think it's probably the impetus is younger lawyers, but I think I'm hearing it now from other um, pockets of uh, lawyer groups. I mean, I think, for example, parents have really appreciated the the flexibility and the remote and hybrid situation. I cannot tell you how many times, including myself, of those who will say, you know, because of the pandemic, I actually get to spend a lot more time with my kids that I didn't have before. And I am perhaps a, a happier lawyer that I I can, um, you know, tend to more things at home and still be doing exactly what I need for work. So to be competitive, I, I think that we do need to keep a pulse of what's going on um, in the industry and and watch watching what our other firms and our competitors are doing. And I think at the end of the day, associates or other attorneys will pick what firm culture matches what they want and, and their values and their priorities and how that, that culture fits their lifestyle. The pandemic, because it was a real period of time of some self-reflection, we all kind of had to, in some ways, go back to our homes and, and figure out and think about things. I think that period was one where there was a lot of reflection analysis. And I think what came out of it is people being more vocal about what's important to them in life and, and their priorities. And again, from a law firm management standpoint, we've we've had to adjust. Well, and I would say that, you know, perhaps the hardest thing for me as, as a litigator has been, and, and from working from home, has been sort of adding the home stuff along with uh, the work stuff. And what, what I mean by that is, you know, now I'm, you know, driving my uh, youngest to school and, and picking him up in the afternoon, um, maybe cooking dinner while my wife, she's a teacher. So, you know, she's, she's at work. And so I'm, I'm starting dinner. And so there, there's more things that I've added sort of to my schedule in addition to, you know, being a lawyer and, and, and working my day job. And, and Joe, I'm, I'm sure you felt kind of the same, you know, kind of stressors as a, a newer parent who's taken on a newer job. There's a lot of, a lot of extra things that I'm sure you're doing in addition to the stresses of, of being a lawyer. So the first six months of the pandemic, I was a daycare operator for my daughter and a full-time lawyer. And it was a really pressurized situation. And it made me kind of have to work more efficiently with the amount of time that I had. But also it allowed for the opportunity to kind of watch her grow more than I would have had, but for the pandemic. So I know I've said it, it's a silver lining, but you know, switching to private practice, I've entered an environment where people are okay if I log off from 4 to 7 p.m. because they know I'll be back online after I put my kids down. And it was important for me and, and I'm sure for other younger lawyer parents that the organization that they choose to align themselves with, be it a, a government agency, a nonprofit, or, or a law firm, 
it aligns with almost all of their goals, but the ones that they have they end up prioritizing the most, um, and I may be generalizing here, inevitably is their kids. For me, it's the one bright spot at the end of a tough day is doing, you know, dance parties to frozen music to clear out some some bad juju from a bad filing or something like that. But I'll say firm culture or workplace culture generally is paramount for younger lawyers because we're thinking long-term. I don't think anybody truly loves switching jobs. So when folks are doing it, it's because they believe that where they're going is where they need to be, both for themselves and for those around them in their lives, be it their kids or their uh, partners or their dog, frankly. I know so many of us, Dave, you mentioned, you know, picking up your kids um, and dropping them off. I mean, the pandemic also started with us taking our dog for a walk, which was better than just dropping him at doggy daycare. So all of those factors, I think, are what's leading to folks choosing either to stay where they are because they believed that it was the right place from the start or from trying a new place or a new sector that better aligns with what their end goals are. And Joe's identified some uh, great things for law firms to think about. And so, Nathan and Cindy, I I wonder, what are some best practices for law firms to kind of gather those ideas and then think about how you can implement them? Because I I guess what I'm thinking is, you know, law, law firm leaders, maybe they're new parents, maybe they're not, but they're usually not young lawyers. How do you tap into getting to know what the needs are of, of your young lawyer associates? And then how do you implement uh, or start to think about how to implement some of those ideas to make sure that, as Cindy said, uh, the, f- the firms are competitive? Nathan, why don't we start with you? Sure. I, it's a really hard question, and I'm not sure I'd, I really know the answer. You know, I, I think transparency and communication has always been something that's really important and that people, you know, crave and want and associate committees and systems that promote and allow feedback and submission of feedback is great. But I do still think we've also got this kind of shift of of real, I guess, kind of individualism in a, in a very kind of extreme way of of how people are looking for jobs and what's important to them. And, you know, as Joe just mentioned then as well, all of those reasons, you know, I've heard at every sort of level and 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 part of of an associate's job search but i don't know if there is a way to really collate them all together and to develop policy and i i guess that's in some ways a bit of a problem i think that we are going to have situations where you know it doesn't tick every box and you know you you may lose people because of that you may retain people because of other things yes there are general trends and as we talked about earlier things like mentorship and access to trainings and developments, you know, the core of somebody's career development is important. But, uh, you know, equally, I think that there's been a a bit of reckoning with some people where they think, well, if I can't get this where I am, and, you know, people's lives are still developing, people are, you know, getting married, having families, doing all sorts of things, then they think, well, you know what, I'll, I'll just look somewhere else because I'm still behind my laptop in my office and, you know, I'm more mobile now. I'm, I'm able to be, and I, I guess it's it, what I, what I'm probably pointing to is, is making sure that you are 
at least trying to keep up with things that change. You know, if you look at that shift from the start of the pandemic, when everything, everyone is in panic mode, you know, and then how quickly shifts things shifted back. It was really interesting to see what different firms did. And I had associate conversations at that time after a few months in when, you know, things were getting busy and there was work where there were still some firms not really accommodating or being reactive. And so those those associates left, they went elsewhere. And that, again, comes back to that stressor point of trying to keep on top of what's hot, what's new, what people are doing, but also remaining profitable and in line with your values as a firm and what you offer and you know, it's 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 created all these different segments. Interesting. Cindy, any thoughts on best practices? Yes. So I do think that the future is, uh, is an environment where flexibility and hybrid is, is, is supported and encouraged. So in terms of best practices for a firm that's competitive in today's day and age, I would say first firm or a, a, a workplace that allows that flexibility where work can be done. Second, uh, a place that provides the technolo- technological support for the, the world more work and hybrid environment and implementing meaningful policies and practices that keep the lawyers engaged and connected with the firm, regardless of where they work. And that means fostering a culture that because one chooses remote work, that's not going to derail that particular person's career. So um, with that, we'd have to monitor and, and just keep keep tabs on whether there are unconscious biases or any detrimental effects to those who choose the hybrid environment because we do want to be inclusive and we don't want to make it seem like there's a penalty for those who choose hybrid. So, you know, if we've got an in-person meeting and someone decides they want to go virtual, we should have that access to to participate in that meeting virtually and that they're not detrimented. So if you're going to go that route and and foster a hybrid environment, you have to, to mean it and do what you say you're going to do. I do think that we should take advantage of any kind of savings on things like travel costs or other things so that we can help associates develop in this new kind of environment where they can participate in conferences or court appearances or client pitches and the like because they're remote that we can get them integrated in more things. And lastly, I think another important thing is we need to also set boundaries. So one of the possible cons of a hybrid environment is that there is the tendency to blur lines between work and home. Um, Just because we're working from home doesn't mean you could call at midnight um, unless it's some major emergency. So I think that it's more important, whether you're management or you're an associate, for example, that you do set those boundaries. Um, like Joe just gave an example. She said, you know, I'm going to turn off my phone from, you know, four to seven or, or whatever, so that we make sure that we respect people's personal lives as well. And Joe, I wonder if you can give some other examples of kind of best practices for associates, because I think it's a two-way street. You know, number one, I think, you know, law firms have to be aware of, I think, as Nathan said, these individualized concerns, but I think the onus is also on associates to let their 
partners know, hey, you know, these are the individual things that I need or, or want as an associate in order to make this hybrid model successful. So what what other things have you seen that people have done to sort of, you know, raise their voices and let, you know, partners know, hey, these are the things that that we need as young lawyers? So often the spotlight goes on leadership or partners making great winning awards or great strides in leadership roles in bar associations or in nonprofit boards, but they all have to have an entry point somewhere. And so one of the things that I did when I jumped over to Cozen was I was very upfront about the challenges that would be coming along with serving as chair of the Young Lawyers Division, the amount of travel that it would take, the amount of conference attendance, the amount of not button seat time that I was going to have in my first year at the firm. And I was in a final round with a couple of firms and was very upfront about it to gauge what the feedback would be. Because I knew at that point, if I couldn't be upfront in an interview space, it wasn't a working environment that I would be able to bring the concerns to a partner to say, hey, I don't want the first client pitch I'm on to be the one I'm pitching. I want to be in the room when you're doing it so I know what to do when the time comes. I want to be trusted with you know, taking my own depositions. I've done it before. I can prove you know, my worth to the firm by doing it again. And so associates have to feel comfortable enough with raising their hand and saying, this is where I see my career in five years, and here are the five steps that I need to take to get there. Be it in a career, in your practice, if you want a, a nonprofit board seat, if you don't want to work a certain number of hours or you do want to work a certain number of hours. All of that takes planning and time. And, and Dave, you're right in, in saying that the onus is in part on associates. But I do think it's a mutual relationship. Every firm or employer has you know, a stake in each one of its employees and treating them like a whole person, making sure that they're given an opportunity not only to succeed and grow as a, as a lawyer and develop the skills necessary to get up in front of any judge and argue any motion or, or, or appear in any hearing, but also on the same side, if they are interested in pursuing things outside of the practice that could inevitably bring more business into the firm or set up uh, the lawyer for success in another uh, avenue. So yes, it's true, young lawyers have to raise their hand, but the environment has to be willing to accept them saying that these are the things that I need to be successful here. Right. And I, there's also another part of being competitive for a law firm, which is making sure you're servicing uh, your clients, perhaps our biggest role as lawyers. So, Cindy, I, I, I'm curious as to hearing, and Nathan as well, you know, what you've heard in terms of what clients think of how law firms are dealing with, you know, the hybrid environment. Are they, I mean, I, I presume that a lot of companies are hybrid as well, but do they believe that law firms are doing a good job in doing this remote environment? Are they doing it well or are they doing it poorly? Nathan, have you heard anything, any news from clients? 
I don't, I don't know if I get enough exposure to, to that, to be honest. I know just on in terms of in-house hiring and roles we see there, which has interestingly been a struggle recently because because of the, the law firm world has been so attractive to a lot of people. But yes, having those hybrid environments and, you know, remote working, those, those roles exist. Just, just briefly, I wanted to, to jump on something Joe said there, which I thought was really powerful, was was just that point about being upfront about interviews. And I think that talking about it different different firms, different interviews, being able to really express that this is actually what I really want, I think does demonstrate a bit of of, of the shift that we've been talking about. And yes, associates raising their hand, but also feeling empowered and able to do so as uh, something where they may not have done before because they're holding the cards a lot more. And I just thought, you know, I just thought that was really interesting. Cindy, did you have any thoughts on either anything Joe said or anything relating to uh, the clients? Yeah, I'll answer your client question. There was some stir around a large Fortune 500 company, chief legal officer that wrote a memo to its law firms requiring their lawyers to come back to the office because those that do will have a significant performance advantage over those that do not. Aside from that particular, you know, story, I've really not heard personally and also serving other colleagues of clients demanding that their lawyers come back to the office. So, uh, I mean, you know, just witnessing and seeing all of the very critical feedback over that, I, I would think that that's not really a majority opinion because I, I can't seem to find any support for that. In fact, I would say I would probably, I probably have experienced the opposite effect now that we've had the ability to talk to clients um, a lot easier and, and not just on the phone, but actually through mediums like Zoom. It's really been an opportunity to strengthen relationships with clients. I've been able to talk to clients where I get to see their home and they get to see a little bit of my home. And then sometimes the the pet jumps in or the kids jump in the picture and you get to laugh about it and you get to share some personal things. And And so I would think that's, again, another silver lining in strengthening relationships with clients. And again, for all the reasons we discussed earlier during this meeting, I think there's a lot of silver linings in how we're spending a lot more time at home and getting to put more hours in. And I think that will affect quality of the work as well. You know, we could talk about this for hours, but we are nearing the time uh, for the end of our episode. Wanted to hear any final thoughts that all of you might have, you know, regarding anything that anyone has raised or any final tips that you might have either for associates talking to law firm leaders or for law firm leaders uh, to listen to what uh, their associates have to say. Uh, Ladies first, uh, Cindy, do you have any final thoughts for us? Yeah, I would just say, again, what I was saying earlier, I think this is the new normal, that if we're going to be competitive, we need to put our ear to the ground and see what other firms and companies are doing. And to be competitive, you know, I think we need to have flexibility in the work, in where work is done, which means I think that a hybrid and remote work is is going to be part of the new normal and the practice of law. Great. Joe, any any final thoughts? Yeah, just one thing that's coming to mind, both for firm 
leaders and partners, but also for associates that in this process, everyone should be honest with themselves and what they're looking for. Not just the associates saying, these are the things that I need, but also whether a firm can provide it or not. And whether it's worth investing or making an opportunity for something to happen that they might not have thought about before the pandemic to keep an associate um, or to keep a quality, promising young lawyer in a space where they could succeed with a little bit extra what they haven't done before. So much of the new normal, as Cindy has talked about a lot today, is going to be in creating new ways to retain and recruit people and thinking creatively and honestly about what's possible and what's feasible is how we're all going to get there. Well, great tips. Uh, and Nathan, as uh, the recruiter, you get the the last last word in here. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I, I echo what uh, Cindy and, and Joe just said, and, and throughout this, I think I think flexible hybrid working is is here to stay. I think at the core of everything, mentorship and development is is still really important and the key to everything in all of these decisions. You know, people have chosen a legal career for a reason, and they they want that stimulation and development. And there's bits to work with, and uh, you just got to roll with the punches, and I guess hope for the best. Excellent. Well, I want to thank Cindy Chang, Joe Bon, and Nathan Pert for being on the show today. Thank all of you for you know the great tips that you provided to us. I know that this is going to be with us for some time, um, and you've given us a lot of food for thought. So thank you all for uh, being with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is an in-house litigator managing global litigation and investigations at Tyson Foods, Inc. in Springdale, Arkansas. Welcome back, Daryl. Hey, Dave. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Glad to be back. Excellent. Well, I understand you're going to be talking about Rule 12B motions today. Absolutely. Well, what's your quick tip? Yeah, so... In the course of litigation, once the plaintiff files their complaint and, and you receive it as a defendant and you're properly served or maybe even improperly served, uh, you have to provide a responsive pleading to the court. Uh, typically, you have about 21 days in federal court to provide that responsive pleading. Or if you elect to do a waiver, you have 60 days after the time after the waiver is timely uh, served to the plaintiff under Rule 4D. But sometimes in lieu of an answer, a defendant may elect to file a Rule 12B motion to assert defenses to the claim and the pl- that the plaintiff makes through their complaint. Under the 12B rule, the following defenses may be asserted by a motion. 12B1 is the lack of subject matter jurisdiction. 12B2 is the lack of personal jurisdiction. 12B3 is the improper venue. 12B4 is insufficient process. 12B5 is insufficient service of process. 12B6 is the failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. And 12B7 is the failure to join a a party under Rule 19. Under the 12B motion, the motion uh, asserts any of these defenses and they must be made before the pleading uh, is allowed if if a responsive pleading is necessary. The most common of these 12B motions is the 12B6, which is the failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. Under that, the Rule 12B allows for a dismissal for insufficiency of a complaint 
is proper under this rule if the complaint fails to allege facts sufficient to support a plausible claim. Uh, and that can be found in Ashcroft v. Iqbal, which is 556 U.S. 662, which was a Supreme Court case decision that was in 2009. The federal rec rules require a short and plain statement of the claim showing that the pleader is entitled to relief. And that can be found under the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure 8A2. And at a minimum, the complaint must contain either a direct or inferential allegations respecting all material elements to sustain a recovery under some viable legal theory. Under Rule 8, it contemplates that the statement of circumstances, occurrences, and events in support of the claim presented, and it requires enough heft to show that the pleader is entitled to relief. To survive a 12B6 motion, to a comp the complaint must contain sufficient factual matter accepted as true to state a claim upon which relief can be granted and is plausible on its face. The allegations must be enough to raise a right to relief above the speculative level and consist of more than unadorned that, you know, maybe the defendant unlawfully harmed me accusation. It has to have meat uh, in order to survive the Rule 12B6. Indeed, the plaintiff obligation to provide the grounds of the entitlement to the relief requires more than labels and conclusions and a formulaic recitation of the elements of a cause of action that just certainly will not do. So when you want to file your complaint, you need to make sure that you are providing enough factual evidence to where you may not have a Rule 12B6 uh, motion filed against you. Uh, the courts are not bound to accept as true the legal conclusion couched as a factual allegation. In other words, that means that the court is not required to accept conclusory allegations or unwarranted factual inferences. That just basically means that, you know, if you have a threadbare uh, recitals of the elements of a cause of action uh, supported by just mere conclusory statements uh, and not actual evidence or actual facts surrounding the uh, injury that you're claiming, that just will not suffice with the court. Therefore, a court considering a motion to dismiss can choose to begin by identifying the pleading that uh, because they are no more than conclusions and that a person is entitled to uh, relief by asserting the truth of the matter and those elements to a particular claim backed by some support. But Actually, when you do file your 12B motion, I want to make it clear that there's a potential to waive some defenses if they not uh, if they are not asserted in your motion or your responsive pleading. And those are the 12B2, which is the lack of personal jurisdiction, 12B3, improper venue, 12B4, insufficient process, and 12B5, the insufficient service of process. If you do not raise those defenses in your responsive pleading on the first outset of responding to a complaint, those potential defenses will be waived if you omit them from the motion. Um, in the circumstances uh, that are described in Rule 12 G2, or if you fail to make it by motion under Rule 12, or if you include it in a responsive pleading or in an amendment allowed by Rule 15 A1 as a matter of course. And I want to bring everybody's attention to Rule 15 A1, which is a, um, a rare rule that some people may not be aware. So as a, a party, if you're filing pleadings, particularly if you're the plaintiff and you're uh, filing a complaint and you get served with a Rule 
12B motion. Before responding to that Rule 12B motion, under Rule 15A1, uh, a party may amend its pleading once as a matter of course within 21 days after serving it. Or if the pleading is one to which a responsive pleading is required, you have 21 days after service of a responsive pleading or 21 days after service of a motion under 12B. E or F, whichever is earlier. So what I want to bring everybody's attention to is even if you have a rule 12 motion that's filed against you under rule 15, a one, you may amend that complaint either 21 days after you file, after you file it and there's no response or if you've gotten a 12B motion, you have 21 days after the service of that 12B motion to actually amend your uh, complaint without leave of court. So that's one key tip that I would like to provide that a lot of people aren't aware of and that there's a possibility to actually amend a pleading uh, without leave of court, even after the Rule 12B motion has been filed. Uh, so Dave, these have been my tips for today that I wanted to offer in regards to Rule 12B motions. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and providing your tips. It's always great to be reminded of the procedures and the complex nature of Rule 12B motions. Thank you so much. Well, that's all we have for our episode today. And I want to thank Michelle Oberts and our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera, for their help with guest preparation and booking. My gratitude also goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and our audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.